sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Do you want your church to be a place of spiritual nourishment or a place of political organizing? Or maybe a little bit of both. Uh, but uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about the administration's desire to throw out something known as the Johnson Amendment. It has a lot of support from uh, the Republican wing of Congress, but you may be surprised to learn where it does not have support, and that is from America's denomination, the religious groups, uh, nearly a hundred of which signed a letter uh, opposing the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. Here to discuss just what it is and why it's important. Uh, the president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, my good friend and colleague, Greg Hamilton. Greg, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thanks, Al. I should just mention that you should know that 71% of Americans opposed repealing the Johnson Amendment, 56% of white evangelical Protestants oppose it, and 63% of Republicans oppose repealing the Johnson Amendment. So if Congress, well, if Congress goes forward with House Resolution 172, They'll be going not only against their own party, they'll be going against the American public. Well, I'm very happy that you led with those statistics. Now, what is this thing that Americans don't want to get rid of? Well, the Johnson Amendment is a basically a congressionally passed as a federal statute, a law that guides the IRS to determine what churches can or cannot do in terms of politics or political involvement. And it originated in 1954 with then Lyndon Johnson, a senator from Texas, his home base being Houston, and there was a religious interest group that tried to unseat him, a senator, and U.S. senator, and he didn't like that. And so he decided that it should be unlawful for religious interest groups and churches to be politically involved in terms of fundraising and campaigning against or for candidates. So it was a law that got passed thanks to Johnson's very persuasive ways. He was probably passed more legislation as a U.S. senator than any other senator in U.S. history. He was a very persuasive man. And, of course, he ended up becoming president of the United States after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Now, um, a lot of Americans may feel like their churches, everybody in the church, uh, believes the same way politically. But... That just is not true. And in all of our churches, there are going to be people who disagree about politics. So my question is, what happens to our churches if there are no longer any restrictions on um, political activity? Well, unfortunately, the propaganda that's out there on the right, and, and believe me, I have a lot of right-wing views myself, but on the right, they're saying that uh, it's a violation of the free speech of pastors or religious people from the pulpit or anywhere in any church activity to speak about anything political or anything having to do with um, politics, which is not true. If it's, if it's based upon moral issues that happens to be um, attached to any political issue uh, of the day, it is not a violation of the IRS tax code or the Johnson Amendment. 
Uh, in fact, churches can get involved, get involved in referenda and signature uh, gatherings and so forth in order to try to persuade legislators to go a certain way. In fact, even Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition back in the day uh, was, was brought in a lawsuit by American Judge Separation Church State and the ATLU saying that their voting guide uh, was unconstitutional and violated the Federal Communications Act, the, uh, the FCC. Um, and so they, they took it before the uh, federal court. The federal court said it guides people as to the way politicians stand on issues, but it's not a direct endorsement of any particular candidate. It falls short of that. So therefore, it passed or met the scrutiny of the Johnson Amendment, which then, you know, if that is if, if a Christian coalition guide, uh, Alan, then surely anything a pastor says from the pulpit passes free speech, muster, and it's not a violation of the Johnson Well, in to my memory, that there have been only two times in my lifetime that the IRS has scrutinized churches for political activity. The uh, the notable one was when the famous pro-life advocate Randall Perry ran a very strong anti-Bill Clinton ad in 1992, and that church did in fact lose its tax exempt status because it was just a blatant violation. And I think some years later, in an effort to seem a little less partisan, the IRS began to investigate a liberal church here in Southern California, um, but no, took no action from it. So, you know, yeah, there are restrictions on churches endorsing candidates, and if you get too far out of line, you know, you may pay for it, but um, it's not a pervasive problem. Now, why do you suppose that so many religious denominations don't want to, uh, according to the critics of the Johnson Amendment, enhance the free speech of churches and allow pastors to endorse candidates? Why don't they favor repeal of the Johnson Amendment? Well, first of all, according to Tim Delaney, the um, CEO and founder of the National Council of Nonprofits, said basically it would gut church coffers. In other words, offering giving, tithe giving, would basically diminish rapidly because when members find out that, that 25% of their offerings and tithes are suddenly used for uh, endorsing candidates and campaigning for them, uh, then uh, it creates divisiveness within the church. They don't want their churches to be used as super PACs, so to speak, or mini PACs, if you want to call them that, to... Um, and that's what would happen. Politicians would start knocking on the doors of churches to get their support. And can you imagine how that would divide churches and make churches politically divisive? They would lose their focus. They would no longer focus on their gospel mission. And it would become a political church. Churches would become political all over the country. And that's a major problem. I cannot... Now, some people say, well, what happened before 1954? What were churches doing then? Guess what? Before 1954, churches were focused on on their their gospel mission. They weren't focused on um, politics. And so now, for some reason, with the joining of the Evangelical and Catholic Alliance, Protestants and Catholics, for some reason, churches are more geared up to be more political and seem to be more willing. So 
that is a phenomenon that's taking shape, but still the vast majority of churches are opposed to it, and the vast majority still have good sense. Uh, to my knowledge, historically, there has been not a single American denomination supportive repeal of the Johnson Amendment. I asked one of my colleagues uh, who does legislative work for uh, one of the denominations for my church in uh, Washington, D.C., whether that was still true, and he believes that it was. So, you know, our listeners, to the extent that they listen to Christian radio, Christian media, Christian internet, you know, you're hearing a very narrow section of the faith community telling you that there's something wrong with the Johnson Amendment, which is not universally believed uh, by any stretch by the leaders of the very denominations where you're attending church. Uh, your own leaders don't support uh, repeal. There seems to be a hunger and thirst for uh, power, political power, to control the electoral process and uh, policy-making processes. So what better way to do that than to be involved in, uh, you know, endorsing candidates, campaigning for them, fundraising, and using church money to do that? And so, you know, when the executive branch and now the House of Representatives with House Resolution 172 want to make that possible to use for churches to use 25% of their budget to do that, uh, that creates a problem. And I don't think people realize what kind of a problem that would create. You know, Greg, when you talk about the lust for power, which I cast in terms of an, a form of idolatry for power, um, I'm going to make a connection here, which may seem a little of a stretch for some, but I think it's valid. You know, this year, we as Protestants are commemorating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, of Martin Luther, all of that. And, you know, as Protestants, we look back at the era of Constantine and the merging of her state as a form of idolatrous pursuit of power and a compromising of the integrity of the faith. And I think that's really what, you know, what we're seeing here is, is a replay of the church compromising its spiritual integrity for power. Well, they want the federal government to give them money, straight up, and they also expect to get money. Uh, are they, now they want to give money to candidates that will give them money. So, you know, it's kind of a quid pro quo, and it's, it's kind of convenient. That's really what they want, is they want financial convenience, which then, which then gives them power, to then control uh, policy-making processes. And what better way for religion and churches to control our nation and our country's constitution and basically turn it on its head to where religious freedom is defined as uh, religious control of the government. Or that is, we demand power and we demand uh, that, and we promise to, to bring our country back to God. We promise to... Uh, basically solve the moral ills of the nation, and the best way to do that is to fund us. If the government will fund us as a church, what better way to do that? And so, therefore, the best way to do that is to to support particular candidates that they favor. Um, and to me, that's what we see happening. It's, it's Esau um, uh, demanding his birthright for a mess of parts all over again. Exactly, yeah. It's, you know, you're, your talk about money reminds me of wise old Ben Franklin quip, which I'm not going to be able to quote exactly, but he basically said that uh, 
you know, if a religion is not uh, sufficiently uh, good to find its support, if God is not willing to support it, uh, winds up seeking support from the state, that's a pretty good sign that it's not a good religion. Here's what he said, the letter, a letter to Richard Price, 1780. When a religion is good, I can see that it will support itself. And when it cannot support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for the help of the civil power, it is a sign, I apprehend, of it being a bad one. <laughs> so uh, we're all in favor here at Freedom's Ring. We're all in favor of good religion religion that can stand on its own two feet, as it were, uh, with its feet planted firmly on the rock of Jesus Christ, and uh, does not require uh, the financing or the power of the state or politicians. So, well, just to be clear, just to be clear, just to summarize, repealing the Johnson Amendment by Congress at House Resolution 172 is not about restoring free speech, but rather about politicians receiving tax-deductible campaign financing from churches in return for giving churches unprecedented political power. That's what we're talking about here. Well, there you've heard it from our guest, President of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, Greg Hamilton, my friend and colleague. Thanks, as always, for being with us on Freedom Ring today. Thank you. And as we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom Ring, we don't just talk to talk about religious freedom. We help people suffering religious discrimination, especially in the workplace. But uh, you can check out all of our legal resources on our website at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. And uh, do uh, listen to Freedom Ring on your iTunes library or on SoundCloud. Don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved today. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom Ring at religiousliberty.info religiousliberty.info This has been Freedom Train. I'm your host, Alan Rhinoff. Until next week, friends, let's freedom reign.